This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. In the 80s, Americans went a bit mad for stickers. They collected them in books, you could buy them by the yard, and for the first time you could even get one for voting. An I Voted sticker would show the world you'd done your civic duty, maybe prompt others to vote too. Most I Voted stickers have changed over the years, but in Georgia, for about a quarter of a century, people who've gone in person to the polls could come away with the same badge of honour, a round sticker bearing the image of a plump peach and stamped proudly with the motto, I'm a Georgia voter. In recent elections, they've even been encouraged to hashtag post the peach. But in the last general election, and in this year's midterms, that peach looks a little different. Early design software had its limits, so the graphics have been sharpened up a bit. And beneath the now less pixelated fruit, in block capitals it reads, I secured my vote. The choice of words is a careful one. A year and a half after President Trump asked Georgia to overturn its election result, the security of voting in Georgia is still being questioned by both the right and the left. I'm John Prudhoe, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, what will it take to restore Americans' faith in their own democracy? Primary season has begun, but while the country gears up for the midterms, more than a third of voters, almost all of them Republicans, still believe the last election was stolen. Commitment to this belief is now the major schism within the Republican Party. And at the centre of this struggle is Georgia. In 2020, it had the tightest presidential election results in the country. It's since passed restrictive new voting laws, locking both parties into a fierce fight over electoral fairness. But how fair are America's elections? And what can the pitched battles taking place in Georgia teach the rest of the country about rebuilding voter confidence? With me this week to take a hard look at what's going on in Georgia, which is really a window onto some of the big questions about American democracy at the moment, are Idris Kaloun and Charlotte Howard, who are together in Washington this week. I've got terrible FOMO seeing you guys together in D.C. How's it going? It's great to be in Washington. I took the Amtrak down this morning, which I hadn't done in a long time. And so it feels like I'm back. I mean, if you're not buying coffee at 5.30 a.m. in Penn Station, are you even really living Yes, you're really not a DC mover and shaker unless you're getting off the Acela and having coffee at dawn in Penn Station. Idris, how's the week been for you so far? Have you been tour guide to Charlotte in DC? Well, Charlotte and I did a few meetings. Um, She went off to take a picture, a selfie, I guess, in front of the White House in like true West Wing Stan fashion. (laughs) You're really throwing me under the bus as the out-of-towner, Idris, but I can take it. (laughs) 
So, Idris, you're back in D.C. now, but you've been in Georgia recently doing some reporting there, looking at the elections that are forthcoming, the midterms in Georgia, but actually really taking your reporting trip as an opportunity to look at the questions around electoral systems and trust in the process. So can you tell us a bit about that reporting trip, why you went to Georgia as opposed to anywhere else? Well, Georgia is a really interesting state for a few reasons. Obviously, it was a pretty solidly Republican state that went blue in 2020. It uh, gave its electoral votes to Joe Biden. And then in a real surprise, it sent two Democratic senators to the Senate, giving Democrats control of that chamber. But the thing that attracted me about Georgia this time around was not just that it's a close state. There are quite a few of those. But it was the fact that the Republican primaries for the governor and for the secretary of state, two people who played a pretty outsized role in the 2020 election because they refused Donald Trump's attempts to overturn the election, are now fighting for their seats again. And there's a decent chance that they might actually make it out. And that, I think, proves a pretty interesting referendum on the state of the Republican Party. And that's the immediate attraction. But Georgia has for four years been the epicenter of America's war over voting and whether elections are fair. You know, back in 2018, when Stacey Abrams was running for governor there, there was this thought that she lost because of voter suppression. And that idea has really taken a hold of her Democrats as well. So I think it is in many ways the epicenter of the legitimacy crisis in America over elections, and it, I think will continue to be. And you talked to lots of people in Georgia when you were there from both sides, from Republicans and Democrats. Who's the first person you want us to hear from? Well, I got a chance to speak with Brad Raffensperger, who was the Secretary of State of Georgia when all of the 2020 electoral shenanigans were going down. And he was the man who some of you may remember was called by Donald Trump and asked to find the uh, 11,000 votes that were needed for Trump to make a loss of victory. And he refused to do that. Um, He didn't play ball. A lot of people assumed that after that, he was a dead man walking as far as Republicans. But there is a reasonable chance that he might actually win his primary and I think continue to stay in office. So I was very glad to have a chance to speak with him. For Georgia voters, number one issue is to make sure that only Americans vote in our elections. We're already seeing in New York City, non-citizens are voting in their city elections. Three cities in Vermont, Maine, Maryland, and California. 80% of all Georgians believe that only American citizens should vote in our elections. And that's why I'm the first Secretary of State to do a robust citizenship audit. And that's what we're fighting to protect. Can you tell me a bit about why it seems that in Georgia the hostility to the idea that elections are fair seems to come from from both sides. When we had a deposition of one of Stacey Abrams' people, what she said in her testimony is that they found that when they poll-tested certain words, uh, voter suppression, that is a word that really energized their base. And so I think it really was a poll-driven strategy to get people to come out. So after the, the 2018 election, I walked into nine lawsuits immediately from Fair Fight, Fair Count, and all those other organizations. None of it was ever supported by the truth. We had record registrations, record turnout. We had, at that time, 16 days of early voting. Now we have 17 days of early voting. And President Biden's home state of Delaware only has 10. So it's never been easier to vote, but we have the appropriate guardrails to make sure we have election security. Then we rolled into 2020, 
And then we saw the flip side of that coin about stolen election claims that based on voter fraud. So they said that there was 10,315 dead people. We could find no more than four. They said there were 66 underage voters. There were zero. They said there was thousands of felons, less than 74. They even said that there was 2,400 non-registered voters, and there was zero. But meanwhile, it's been, what, 15, 16 months, and that urban legend still lives. Yeah. I mean, a majority of Republicans still believe that the 2020 election wasn't fair. A majority of Georgian Republicans seem to believe that as well from the polling I can see. What, what can you do to convince people that the elections were fair? Well, I continue to go out and talk to people. I've been on some very conservative radio, and one of those uh, people, when they introduced me, said, this man will go anywhere. He'll talk to any group, and he's right, I will. Because what happened in 2020, it's real simple. The cold, brutal truth is 28,000 Georgians skipped the presidential race and yet voted down ballot. The Republican congressman got 33,000 more votes than President Trump, and that's why he came up short. And are people convinced when you when you were able to make your case to them, do you think? People are disappointed. Well, I get that, so am I. I've never voted for a Democrat. Well, I'm not planning on starting. Uh, I believe in our conservative principles. I think when Ronald Reagan really laid down the, you know, the new era of Republican conservatism, it was very positive, it was aspirational, it also grew the team and made it bigger. And so that's one of the things I think we need to lean back into. It's really about integrity, character, honesty, civil discourse, and and kindness. Do you think the party is closer to bridging that divide on that subject, that core subject of integrity? Or do you think this election is a chance to, to say something about that? History has shown that good always triumphs over evil, and truth always triumphs over untruth. And so I'm really confident about the future. I don't mean to be philosophical about it, but I understand right now, you know, the people are hurting. There's a lot of angst out there. But as you go through these tough cycles, eventually we work through it, and then you end up with new leadership. You know, there's an ideal, I would guess, voting system that you probably have in mind. And I wonder, at the start of your term, I don't think you thought Georgia was there. How close do you think it is to the ideal now? We have a verifiable paper ballot, and so we can audit in the election it is a secure system, but also it gives people confidence in the results. We now have 17 days of mandatory early voting. We now have to require counties to keep lines shorter than one hour. That's very good. We also have a reasonable cutoff date, 11 days before an election, to request your absentee ballot. And so it's a more uniform process. It helps the counties manage the process. Obviously, we now have accountability. Any county that can't run an election we can actually have some teeth to be able to do something instead of just sitting there. The state election board can make changes. We need to get back to when campaigns lose, they can blame it on who they need to blame it on, their campaign consultants or the candidate himself. You mentioned the state election board. Are are you concerned by the fact that you're no longer a voting member of it? Well, that decision was made. You're seeing some of the challenges is that uh, it does take a bit longer to get decisions. And then if people end up you know, coming off the board, you end up not having a majority or you don't have you know, a chairman. A chairman's not been appointed. And the guidelines for that person that would be the chairman is someone that cares passionately about elections but has never held elected office and doesn't give money to campaigns, hasn't been a campaign manager, things like that. So when you find that unicorn, you know, please let me know. Now, if you don't like what the state election board does, who do you hold accountable? 
I've never believed in unelected boards, commissions, and authority, you know, having a large sway in very important, you know, issues of uh, public policy. Mm-hmm. And that's what you have right now. Mm-hmm. I've been asking people a few very simple questions, but uh, I, I thought I'd ask you them. Was the 2018 election held in Georgia fair? 2018, yes. Was the 2020 election fair? Yes. Will the 2022 election be fair? Absolutely. Do you think you're in a minority of people who would answer yes to all three of those questions? Oh, you'd have to do, you know, interview every Georgian. Yeah. But I think that at the end of the day, people know that I will stand in the gap and I'll make sure we have fair and honest elections. We will make sure that we have the appropriate guardrails of accessibility with security. There is a tension between that. And I know that there's a tension. But what I wanted them to understand is that even though at the end of the day, half the people would be happy with the results, half the people would be sad that you could trust the results. Idris, listening to that interview, I have some sympathy for Brad Raffensperger and the way he's getting attacked from his own side, from the Republicans, and also from Democrats who feel that elections in Georgia are not fair. What did you make of him? Well, you know, you reminded me of my dad. He's a mild-mannered, soft-spoken guy who every time he talks, you can see, is talking out of a deep sense of personal integrity. He, I, I think, is believing all the things that he is saying. And you get a sense when speaking to him that he's a man who's sort of been thrust into, by the caprices of history, into this sort of extraordinary role that he has. So I came away kind of struck. But on the flip side, his campaign is not about what I did in 2020 was right. He can't really say that if he wants to win the the primary. It's still about, you know, making sure elections are secure, making sure that Stacey Abrams isn't going to weaken election security, making sure that non-citizens are unable to vote. Yeah, that's right. I think that the country has really woken up to the fact that you can use power on a local level to ensure power on a national stage. And so you see these fights playing out, not just in Georgia, but all over the place. In Michigan, I was struck that the person who's the nominee for Secretary of State, the person who's going to be in charge of elections, and the person who won the nomination for the Attorney General's office, those are all stop the steal candidates. So this is playing out all over the place. In Georgia in particular, Purdue, David Purdue, the first line of his debate performance was about the election being stolen. And so David Perdue and Raffensperger might differ about what happened in 2020 to Idris's point, but going forward, how this plays out in terms of further restrictions looking ahead is actually not too dissimilar. That even if you think that the election was at least not a fraud, that it wasn't completely stolen, that you might, as a Republican, nevertheless need to, for political reasons, continue to tighten uh, voter restrictions is notable. So Idris, the Secretary of State race is really interesting in Georgia. There's also an interesting governor's race, and the governor will have you know some influence over how elections are run. Tell us what you made of what's going on there, because that's yet another one of these races where it seems to be a test of Donald Trump's influence. The candidate he's endorsed isn't perhaps doing as well as you might expect if your model of how Republican politics works is that Trump just chooses somebody and then the voters line up behind that choice. Everyone is looking at primary season to try to assess whether Donald Trump is still the kingmaker in the Republican Party. And there are a few primaries that have already happened where people have drawn results. So in Ohio, I think, which is the most notable, two weeks ago, we saw that J.D. Vance, who had not been doing very well, 
got Trump's nomination, soared in the polls, and won. This week, we got a bit of a split decision from West Virginia and Nebraska. But Georgia is one of the most prominent because Kemp became this sort of arch antagonist of Donald Trump because he did not help him steal the election. And so the candidate that Trump basically handpicked to go after Kemp to avenge his loss was David Perdue. And and by all accounts, according to the polls, it looks like Purdue is going to lose. I think that in Trump generally doesn't like to pick losers. And I think he's actually had a decent amount of discipline in making sure that he doesn't only pick the sort of most Trumpy candidate, but he picks a Trumpy candidate with a decent shot of winning. And I think in Georgia, his contempt for Kemp is so large that that impulse was overruled and he picked Purdue. So I think that 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 will be the right way to think about what the results of the election will be. Obviously, once we have all the primary elections conducted, people will be able to go back and and I'm sure we'll do this and see, you know, what share of Trump endorsements actually won. I imagine it'll still be extremely high. Okay, in a moment, we'll go back to look at just how much the mechanics of how American vote has changed over time and the political setup that made that possible. But first, the usual reminder, if you're not yet a subscriber to The Economist, then you should really give it a go. There's a lot more to what we do at The Economist than checks and balance. Charlotte, Idris, what have you particularly liked um, from the past week's coverage? I'm going to make a controversial choice, which is to plug my own column this week. I got to stand in for the Schumpeter column for the business section. And the reason why I'm mentioning it is because I wrote about traditional activists like Carl Icahn, um, who I spoke to twice for the story. And it necessitated me going back through all of the really horrible things that activists have said about each other and about chief executives. And it was so fun. I haven't had this much fun writing a column in a long time. So Carl Icahn, for instance, calling Ackman a crybaby on national television, and Dan Loeb of Third Point writing to a chief executive calling him one of the most dangerous and incompetent executives in America. So I really enjoyed it. I don't know whether other people enjoy reading it, but I enjoyed the reporting. Yeah, there's nothing like an ad hominem attack from one titan on another. Idris, how about you? We have not had very many uplifting covers this year, but this week's cover about the sort of enormous growth of the Indian economy has experienced and will continue to experience is an exception to that and is refreshing for that reason. And also, I think the cover image of Modi basically skipping over a bunch of cars uh, while he's riding an electric tuk-tuk is, uh, is pretty extraordinary. So cover image alone, I think, good for me. Yes, both the stories you picked are excellent. Economist.com slash USPod is the link to subscribe. You'll find it in the notes for this episode. classroom is one of the 130,000 places the country over in which American citizens are going to cast their votes today. The right to vote is the most fundamental right in a democracy. This is the table where the voters' names will be checked. The locked ballot box and the polling booth. Here it is. But in America, the times, places and manner of holding elections are left to the states. The voting here today takes place according to the laws of the land. And now the polls are open. And in search of that elusive balance between transparency and security, access and control, state lawmakers have been experimenting with how America votes since the very beginning. That's as far as we can go. Remember, this is a secret vote. 
No one ever sees another person mark his ballot. Secret ballots are relatively new. For the first 50 years of federal elections, voters, overwhelmingly white men, voted by gathering in a room and shouting. Idris's home state of Kentucky only got rid of voting by shouting in the 1890s. Public voting like this looked transparent, but made it easy to intimidate and coerce voters. Secret ballots seemed like the answer. But the parties quickly started printing their own on different coloured paper so observers could still see who had voted for whom. An innovation imported from Australia solved that problem. Official ballots on uniform paper printed at public expense. This time, Kentucky was a pioneer. But even paper has its flaws. Busy people often, by habit, make check marks on the ballot in states where X's are required. They might as well have stayed home. That vote is a no vote, doesn't count, illegal. Other voters find that at the last minute they have accidentally voted for the wrong man, or they change their mind. Don't, lady? Uh-uh, it doesn't count. Fears of invalid ballots and unreliable counts led many states to try and take vote counting out of human hands altogether. The commissioner figured there's some excuse for being disenfranchised by tyranny or war or fear. Oh, yes, it can happen here. But not for well-intentioned mistakes. Not in this age of the voting machine. The first voting machines were lever-operated mechanical marvels. The size of a wardrobe, voters would physically step inside. Mr. Citizen moves the operating lever to the right, which unlocks the machine and locks out the world. Their sheer size inspired confidence. The voter selects his candidates by turning down the voting pointers directly above the names of his candidates. Then he records and counts his own vote by returning the operating handle to the left. They were first used in New York in the 1890s. Some states were still using them in the 1980s. His vote is made and cast untouched by other human hands or minds. And that's a long step up from tyranny. Of course, lever voting wasn't flawless. A bit of grit in the machine could throw them off, by mistake or by design. Most polling stations could only afford one, which would sit there for decades. Don't be surprised if in the not-too-distant future someone offers you a great deal on a slightly used voting machine. Hmm, it's... It's too big for a lamp, maybe a shower stall. Then, in the 1960s, a political scientist called Joseph P. Harris developed the Votomatic. It took America by storm. I liked it, and it was a lot of fun. Well, I thought they were much easier than I had expected. No trouble, whatever. They just, uh, you punch out the name you want, and that's it. Drastically smaller and cheaper, the Votomatic brought voting into the computer age by punching holes in a card. But punching holes is easier said than done, as proven by the hanging, dimpled, pregnant and swinging chads of Florida's contested vote count in 2000. Today, most states have embraced a hybrid system. Paper ballots that can be mailed out, scanned, electronically counted and recounted by hand if necessary. But technology alone cannot fix America's elections because the power state lawmakers have over how elections are run can itself undermine the process. In the South, under Jim Crow, 
it was used to systematically exclude black people from voting. The 1965 Voting Rights Act tried to put a stop to that, making it harder for those states to set their own rules. But in the past decade, the Supreme Court has handed some of those decisions back to states. And the 1965 law did not address a fundamental flaw in the way many states run elections, that the people in charge of writing voting rules, administering elections and certifying the results are, in many cases, elected partisans themselves. Thus, in Georgia this November, partisans will not just be on the ballot, they will run the election too. Charlotte, there are a couple of things that strike me as really distinctive about the way America goes about running elections to federal office. A, that the states get so much latitude in how they can set things up and administer things. And B, just the involvement of partisans in electoral administration and certification in America. I don't know of other sophisticated Western democracies that have that degree of partisan involvement. And that seems like a real problem at this point. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, America is the only country that elects most of the officials who are overseeing elections. And there are only a few others that let party members lead the administration of elections. There was a study out of Harvard that looked at election integrity, and America had the same score as Mexico and Panama, much lower than Costa Rica or Chile. Of course, uh, Denmark, Finland, Norway, they were at the very top. We have a colleague who calls them the goody-goody Scandies. But it is sort of a reminder of just how out of step America is. Yeah, I think that's right. Although, you know, America's elected secretaries of state who have identified with one party or the other for decades. And they used to be quite sleepy, technocratic positions, maybe an aspiring governor or attorney general would, would decamp to until they plotted their next run. It's really only in the last few years, within the last decade, that these positions are scrutinized in, in the same way that we would scrutinize the attorney general or, or governor's race. And um, when you get into the situation in which um, prominent scholars of the decline of democracy have called uh, you know, constitutional hardball, this idea that you push the limits of the Constitution as far as you can go, when you get into the situation in which people are mucking about with the actual election rules themselves and trying to steer them towards partisan advantage, I think that that's, that's really you know, slippery slope analogies are overused, but I think in this case it's, it's quite apt. And Charlotte, since 2013, when the Supreme Court ruled in the case of Shelby v. Holder, states have had more latitude to set the rules than, than they had before. There's less federal oversight than was once the case. Right. So what Shelby did essentially is that there are states that have a history of voting laws that have discriminated on the basis of race. And it used to be that they needed federal approval to change their voting rules. And Shelby essentially gave states more power to adjust as they saw fit. And then there was another ruling in 2021, Bernovich, the effect of which is a bit more disputed. But Kagan was very withering in her dissent, calling it tragic for democracy, with the idea that states had more autonomy to pass election laws that they claimed were designed to limit voter fraud. But there was concern that it might do much more than that. I, I personally think that Bernovich is categorically different from Shelby County because the Shelby County decision struck down a portion of the Voting Rights Act as unconstitutional, basically saying that it was unreasonable to continue to treat states differently based on their actions 50 years ago, whereas the Bernovich decision didn't dispute the logic of the Voting Rights Act, but instead found that two of the new election laws that Arizona had put into place 
were not racially discriminatory. Yeah, Dries, I think that's fascinating. The other thing that I am really interested in is this question of accountability, right? In that Raffensperger made the point that if you elect the person who's in charge of overseeing elections, at least you then know who you can blame. And the idea of having nonpartisans oversee elections is kind of a myth, sort of like a unicorn. And you see this a bit playing out also in another really hot area having to do with elections, which is the redistricting that's underway right now and gerrymandering. In New York State, there was a law that was passed to create a commission, a bipartisan commission, to draw the electoral map in that state with appointees from both parties. But what actually ended up happening is the panel deadlocked on party lines. They couldn't agree on the map. The legislature rejected the map, and then Democrats made their own. And so I think that kind of gets to the challenge of even when you identify something that's a little bit wrong or majorly wrong in a system, fixing it is hard because the people who you ask to fix the system are the people who benefit from it. It's like asking a dog to give up a bone. It's hard for it to happen. Yeah, I take that point, Charlotte. But it is really hard to work out how we get there from here. I've, I fell down a bit of a rabbit hole this week and read a book called Election Administration in the United States, which was published nearly a century ago in 1934 by the same Joseph P. Harris who invented the Votomatic machine. And the number one recommendation from that book, the policy prescription, was get partisans out of election administration. And I guess it's frustrating reading that now and looking at what's going on in Georgia and in other states because it seems like the failure to deal with that earlier at a point when there was a bit more consensus is really hurting the way that America runs its elections now and undermining the trust that voters have in them. So it's a problem that's been a long time in the making and also ignored for a really long time. We'll be back in a moment to look at the impact of some of the new voting laws being brought in by states, including Georgia, since the 2020 election and ask which party they might favour. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. Election integrity groups associated with the progressive side of American politics have been really worried about some of the election integrity laws that Republican state legislatures have passed over the past year. A lot of them argue that these tactics amount to voter suppression, which, of course, has a particularly grim history in the South. Idris, who did you speak to from that side of the argument? When I was in Georgia, I spoke to Ense Ufo who is the executive director of the New Georgia Project, a very prominent organization which was founded originally by Stacey Abrams. Um, She, along with other progressive legal groups, have criticized the flurry of new voting laws that have been passed in Republican states over the past year. And she says one of the biggest challenges ahead of the midterms will be just figuring out exactly what all the legal changes will entail for Georgia voters. There have been so many changes to Georgia's election law because of Republican bad behavior and malfeasance, starting with Georgia's long 
history of voter suppression, but then also most recently Senate Bill 202 that passed in 2021, and then this recent bill that passed in this past legislative session. What that means for us in terms of the criminalization of voting and voting-related behavior, there are five new crimes that have been added to the books, and some of them feel very targeted at groups like ours who do direct voter contact. And so, one, what does the legal terrain look like? I suspect that there's going to be a lot of confusion figuring out how to continue to put out sort of relevant popular education materials, particularly in a really noisy environment that's polluted with disinformation. It is having an impact on people's faith and belief in sort of civic participation and our institutions. And we are in trouble if folks withdraw from the process altogether. I think that my candidate in this moment feels like it is democracy. I mean, starting first, when you said disinformation that voters of color are seeing, what what specifically do you have in mind? Is it messages that suggest that they might be prosecuted for voting or what what, what do you have in mind? So there's that. Um, I think that there's disinformation about how to evaluate candidates, what they stand for, Um, disinformation about the elections themselves, the dates, the times, what they can and cannot do. You think that there is a disproportionate disinformation effort directed at Black candidates whenever they get across? Or? I don't know if it's disproportionate. I think that it has a, a more significant impact mm-hmm. given that we are still at a place where it takes an, an incredible amount of organizing and coalition building to get a Black candidate elected on a statewide level. There's never been a Black woman governor in America, period. And so thinking about how willing people are to believe the worst about women and women candidates and how willing people are to believe the worst about Black candidates and people of color, I think that we are right to be uh, thinking about how to neutralize the impact of that on voters and their decision making. Would you say that voter suppression is active and alive in Georgia today still? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And how has SB202 made it worse in your mind? I think SB202 has made it worse in my mind because one tactic of voter suppression that has been effective is confusion. There's literally 50 changes to Georgia's laws, election laws, because of SB202. And this will be the first statewide election where those laws are in place. There are 159 counties in Georgia. And so you have people who are all along the ideological spectrum and you have people who are all along the competency spectrum when you think about who manages elections in all 159 in Georgia's counties. Mm -hmm. There are people who absolutely believe in the big lie and are doing everything that they can with the platform that they have in order to make it more difficult for Georgians to vote. All of these hurdles that are constructed, individually, they might be easily dismissed as inconveniences, Mm -hmm. right? But collectively, they make it objectively more difficult for people to vote, right? Just under 12,000 votes decided the presidential election in Georgia. It is significant. It will have an impact in this new swing state. Do you worry about, I mean, we talked about voter suppression, but people have this other term, you know, electoral subversion, or basically just stealing elections. Do you worry if some people who are currently running in Georgia get elected that we could just have be in a situation of constitutional crisis and outright 
election theft and, and stealing. Yes, absolutely. What the hell do you think SB 202 is designed to do? It damn sure isn't injecting integrity into our elections. It is designed to insert the will of the state legislature in place uh, for the will of the people, the will of the voters, period. And so we're going all in. I think that there's a clarity amongst people who run elections about what is at stake. We could be looking at a constitutional crisis if there isn't a clear and decisive winner. And if we don't have an election protection apparatus to make sure that we can protect the vote and that those votes actually get counted. This leads into something I've been asking most people I've been talking to while I'm here. But um, do you think the 2018 election held in Georgia was fair? that the 2020 election held was fair? And do you think 2022 will be fair? No, no, no. Idris, the way Enseufo describes SB202, it sounds pretty alarming. How much can we tell about what its impact will be in practice? I think it's a very fraught discussion. If you try to empirically estimate what these voter ID laws do to turn out. Um, As some political scientists and economists have done, you get conflicting results. Some see very little effect of voter ID laws on turnout. Others seem to detect a a reasonably large effect. Depending on what side of the aisle you fall on, you tend to emphasize one of those results over the other. What's kind of interesting about this debate also is that America is a bit of an outlier in the fact that a lot of states don't require voter ID law in present. Um, Most of Europe does require an ID in order to vote. You could argue that they also make it much easier to get an ID, which I think is possibly the compromise that America should should go for. And in fact, it's the one that uh, a bipartisan commission chaired by Jimmy Carter and James Baker back in the 2000s also suggested. Nonetheless, it's concerning that uh, that people are mucking with election rules for naked partisan advantage. And I think that's a much more serious um, threat to democratic legitimacy, which already has suffered so much. Idris, I want to ask you, though, about this, because voter ID laws, I think, have been shown to limit certain segments of voters, right? They have been shown to disproportionately burden voters of color, for instance, in North Carolina and Texas, right? So what's the evidence on this? Voters of color are less likely to have the IDs. Yes. I'm talking about whether or not a voter ID law results in a overall decline in turnout or partisan advantage in one way or the other. And so is the implication that the threat of voter suppression is sufficiently mobilizing that it cancels each other out in practice, that any limiting effect on voters is canceled out by a surge in enthusiasm to protect the right to vote? So there, there's that theory that there's a counter-mobilization effect because progressive groups become aware of it and, and it's motivating to get people out to vote. A second theory is that, you know, restrictions on things like postal voting actually affect both sides quite, quite a lot. So it used to be the case that Republicans were very much in favor of absentee ballots because they had a lot of older voters who preferred to vote in that way. And so when states move to restrict absentee ballots, they might make it harder for some Democrats to vote, but also some people who would have voted Republican are also not voting as well. So as a result, the net effect is is more difficult to detect. Idris, Ense Ufo is pretty clear there. She said voter suppression is active and alive in Georgia. Brad Raffensperger earlier said that voter suppression is a poll-tested phrase that Democrats use to drive turnout. It's hard to reconcile those two claims, right? They are opposing claims. 
But for all of that, it seems to me that this debate is kind of about the wrong thing at the moment. It's about something important, right, which is how do we write rules that govern elections? But there's a new threat to American democracy that reared its head in 2020, which is not about what happens before votes are cast, which is the concern around voter suppression, but what happens right afterwards and whether the votes can be counted and then certified in a way that everyone can trust. And there's a large chunk of the Republican Party now that's hell-bent, it seems, on undermining that process in quite a systematic way. So I guess what frustrates me a little bit is that people, I think, are focusing on the wrong thing here. I think that's really fair. And I think, though, that there's a reason why we're distracted by it, because the volume of bills has just been so extraordinary on both sides of the aisle. I mean, really, if you look at in 2021 alone, there were at least 19 states that passed 34 laws restricting access to voting, according to the Brennan Center. But there were more than 440 bills with various provisions related to voting access that were introduced. And so making sense of all this stuff, and by the way, this is a pace that has continued. So making sense of the implication of this was really tricky and hugely important. So I both agree with you, and I think really it's a question of bandwidth, that you need to be paying attention to both things because there's a lot at stake. I would note that one statistic that stood out to me was the number of people, the share of of respondents in polls who say now that they wouldn't trust the outcome of the 2024 election if their preferred candidate lost. For Democrats, it was only about 13 percent. For Republicans, it was 59 percent. And I think that really shows the influence that Donald Trump has had in undermining broader faith in the election process. When you win, the election was fair. When you don't, the election was rigged. I mean, it's really puerile and dangerous. Yes, Charlotte, I think that's well said. Let's leave this here for now. But before I let you go, of course, it's quiz time. Georgia has so far only produced one president, Jimmy Carter. He was first mentioned in The Economist in October 1970 when he won the Democratic nomination for governor. We called it an anti-establishment year for Georgia Democrats because while Carter was running from well to the right of center, Democrats also nominated for Congress Andrew Young, who had become the first black congressman from Georgia since Reconstruction. Question one. Carter is not widely considered to have been a successful president, but he has had a rather better post-presidency, including winning the Nobel Peace Prize in 2002. With which three other presidents and one vice president does he share that honor? Obama. It was Teddy Roosevelt for negotiating the Treaty of Portsmouth. That is so impressive, Idris. I stand in awe, as usual. (laughs) I don't know the vice president, though. Uh, Should we guess? Yeah, have a guess. Dan Quayle. Gore. Al Gore. Just kidding. Al Gore for climate change. (laughs) Dan Quayle would be a great shout. If only the Nobel Committee were were more imaginative. Um, Barack Obama is correct. Roosevelt is correct, Idris. I feel like you get a bonus point for that one. Al Gore won it. He's the vice president on the list. And then the final one is Woodrow Wilson, who won the Nobel Peace Prize for his hand in the creation of the League of Nations in 1920. Question two. Though respected for many things, President Carter was widely ridiculed for an incident in 1979 when he was attacked while out fishing by what? What attacked President Carter when he was fishing? Hmm. A duck? A a bird of some kind. Perhaps a pigeon. I'm very anti-goose. I'm going to say maybe a a goose. 
think being attacked by a goose would be terrifying. It is. Have, do you speak from experience? I've been nearly attacked by a goose. A Canadian goose. Okay, how, how about if it's a rodent, I win, and if it's a bird, you win? Fine. <laughs> it was apparently a wild swamp rabbit. I didn't even know such a creature existed. Carter was in his hometown of Plains, Georgia. It's a made-up animal. He was out fishing in a... Hear me out here. He was out fishing in a flat-bottom boat. The rabbit had been chased by hounds to the river and swam towards him. Startled, the president splashed it with water until it swam away, and the incident was immortalized by an amused White House photographer. So a wild swamp rabbit. I think honor's even there. I just looked it up. He looks pretty normal. It looks just like a rabbit. Mm. Just a regular old rabbit. So my favorite part of today so far has been when we were getting ready to go to the White House, Idris and I and our boss, Zanny Mittenbettos, and another colleague. And the two men were debating whether to wear a tie. And Zanny was trying to tell them not to wear a tie. But they anxiously continued to put on their ties. And then Zanny kind of sighed in a disappointed manner and said, well, you're American, and then went back to doing what she was doing. (laughs) It was a good call. It was the right call. You know, I stand by that decision. Charlotte, I think you're really getting into the swing of DC life, just casually mentioning your visits to the White House. That's very much how things are done in the nation's capital. So so you're you're acclimatizing. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I actually have to go. I have to stop by the CIA uh, just quickly to stop by Langley. They really need my advice on a few things. Um, Well, thank you for making time for us. Thank you, Idris, as well. Yeah, thanks for having me. Bye, John. Bye, Idris. The episode was produced by Emika Shortino-Nolan and Nicola Rofast with research by Erica Shin. If you like the podcast, then please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can also get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week. Hold up. 